0: Uh, Moody was an evangelist uh, back in the 1800s, uh, mid to late 1800s, and uh, he tells the following story. He was at a zoo when he witnessed uh, what was uh, taking place. There was a man who was uh, mercilessly beating his dog, and uh, apparently what had happened was the the man had boasted about uh, his dog's obedience and entered into a bet with with another person, and uh, when the... uh, dog owner uh, tried to get the dog to follow his commands, the dog refused. And as a result of that, the man lost uh, his wager and uh, the owner was furious with the dog and began to uh, literally beat and beat this, this poor uh, pitiful uh, animal. And uh, at, at one point, he while the dog is kind of whimpering and, and beaten, and remember, this is the 1800s, all right? So, you know, it's like, uh, don't think that, that this can't, couldn't happen today because, you know, just, you know, Michael Vick, just, that's, that's all I mentioned, all right? So, so uh, he, takes, he takes the dog and he throws the dog over a fence into the lion's cage. Now this poor dog that has been beaten and battered and whimpering is now standing on its legs, absolutely shaking like a leaf in the presence of a great lion. And the lion comes over to the, this poor, pitiful dog. He sniffs at the dog. And then amazingly, he, begin, he begins to lick the dog's wounds. The dog just collapses before the feet of the lion. And the lion lays down right next to the dog and continues to comfort, to, to warm the dog, and to lick its wounds. Amazing, Right? The, do- the dog owner sees what, what, what has happened and, and uh, there's the man who's in charge of the lion's cage saw everything as well. And he said to the man, I, I would like my dog back. So the man who uh, was in caring for the, for the lion said, you can have your dog back. The only thing is you've got to go in there yourself and get him. It's a true story. How, how, how do we have... This ferocious, mighty image of a lion and at the same time be so tender and compassionate and gentle at the same time. Um, it's a paradox, right? It's, it's amazing, but it's a, true, it's a true story. At the end of the story, he says this. He says, and that, He says, my friends, was you and I beaten and bruised and battered and on the verge of being devoured. But the lion of the tribe of Judah comes alongside of us, heals our wounds and acts as our protector, providing us with comfort and with love. The lion of the tribe of Judah sounds like an incredible story, but it is true as far as I can tell. And Jesus Christ is precise, precisely the kind of Savior that we need. One who is mighty to save, but one who is also compassionate. One who is, one who is terrifying in so many ways, but is also tenderhearted. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet there's this other image of Jesus where he's called the Lamb of God. If you're here today and you're joining us for this series, this is part three. We've been looking at the names of Jesus as the video kind of expressed this morning. What we've been saying is that there's no one name that's sufficient enough, able enough, comprehensive enough to describe the wonder and the majesty of Jesus. We need the composite of all of these various titles and names of Jesus to get an understanding, just just even even a glimpse of of the greatness of his person. And so uh, in uh, last week, we we talked about the king of kings. Uh, He's called the king of Israel. He's called the king of the Jews. But most importantly, for those of us who have have been loved by him and have come to love him, we said that he's the king of hearts, who's come to, with unconditional love, uh, win us into uh, the kingdom of God. By grace have we been saved. Uh, in part one, we talked about, uh, we talked about the, the last Adam, the, the final Adam, the, the second man, the Lord Jesus from heaven, who comes to bring about a restoration of all things, a, rest- a restoration of creation itself that has been fallen into disarray. This morning, I want to talk to you about Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also to combine that dual vision of him as the Lamb of God that takes away. The sin of the world. There's no inconsistency uh, in this image of the lion and the lamb. And in, in fact, it's, it's one of the, the greatest paradoxes, and yet it's also one of the greatest revelations of Jesus Christ. And again, there's no inconsistency in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's a couple of dynamic scenes I want to take you through where, where this dual nature of Jesus is revealed. Number one, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you probably are familiar with the scene. Uh, but in, in mightiness, like a roaring lion, Jesus enters into the courtyard of the temple. And he sees something that he doesn't like. He doesn't like what's going on. And so he goes over in a fury, in, in righteous indignation and anger. And he flips over the tables that were housing the, the money changers. And he he takes a cord. John says he takes a cord, makes makes a whip out of it, and uh, he chases out the livestock. He he tells those that were selling doves, get these things out of here. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise, but my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And in that righteous anger and indignation, and fury, he doesn't sin. In fact, Jesus will not be guilty of the sin of omission. You know what the sin of omission is? The sin of omission is to him who knows to do good and does it, doesn't do it, that's sin. And so Jesus righteously is angry, but he does not sin. He, he, the coins can be picked up. The animals can be regathered. You know, the tables can be put back up, right? But Jesus, what, what is so remarkable about this event that took place in, in Matthew 21 is what is said in verse 19. I'm sorry. Verse fourteen. It says this. Then they brought to him without losing a breath. Then they brought to him the blind and the lame, and he healed them, just like, just like, Deal Moody's story. In the midst of mightiness, there is the the release of healing. They brought to him. The, the, the blind and the lame. The lame had to be carried to Jesus. And, and the blind had to be led to Jesus. And in tenderness and in compassion, he administers healing to those that were needy because my father's house is a house destined for prayer. This is what it's all about. Jesus, so consistent between the mightiness of the lion of the tribe of Judah and the gentleness of the lamb, of God, whose purpose was to take away the sin of the world, comes and he, and he ministers uh, the dual nature of Christ. Uh, today, you know, uh, in October, we're right somewhere maybe in the third uh, of football season, right? Today, at least a hundred million people across this nation. We'll watch their favorite team, and they'll root, and they'll cheer, and they'll get excited. Or like Dove, you'll set the DVR, and you'll watch it late tonight, and, and go to bed three o'clock in the morning, right? And, and 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 you have teams that you're rooting for that have names like, like the Bengal Tigers, uh, the Seahawks, the Bears. Uh, what what else? Uh, say again. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm dealing with animals. <laughs> the jaguars. Okay. All, all images of, of strength and power because there's something about, there's something about these images that, 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 we, that we rally around. You will not find an NFL or an AFL team called the Lambs. I guarantee you. You will not find Bambi as a team mascot. For any of these guys in a contact sport like football, maybe next week you guys, when you're playing football, you can call yourselves the lambs, all right? That might be fun, you know? But, but think about it. Nobody wants to be associated with that which is basically vulnerable and weak and soft because, listen, lambs, lambs don't have claws. Lambs, lambs can't hurt anything or anyone. They, would ne- they could not hurt anyone. But God turns the picture upside down and right side up and portrays for us the mightiest image in the universe as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. There's strength in the revealed weakness that God chooses to use. Now when we talk about, and you know, I heard this just this week. Uh, the Lion King on Broadway is the fifth longest running play on Broadway. W- what is it? There's something intrinsic in, in this in the human psyche that we we love power and might and, and royalty and majesty, right? There's something. That is the longing in us, and, and, and I use the same analogy about all these superheroes that that have become so popular in the movies and in comic books. And the, there is a need for a hero, a champion, and that we have in our Lord Jesus. When Jesus is revealed in the gospel, you know, one of His names Isaiah said would be the Mighty God, and He's come in great might and power. He. He blows away the disciples when he rebukes the wind and the sea. And they say, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, he, he expels demons, not, not, not struggling in hours and hours, but rather with the finger of God, he cast out demons with the word of his power. You know, Uh, in the Gospels, there's the disciples are caught in this great storm, right? But they're not terrified by the storm in this occasion. But what are they terrified by? They see Jesus come strolling on the waves, walking, and that terrifies them because Jesus was unlike any other man they had ever come to know or imagine. That hint of, this dual nature of Christ is even seen at the gravesite of Lazarus. When, when Jesus sees Mary and Martha weeping, uh, John eleven thirty five 35, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He, he begins in tenderness to weep, but then in the strength and might of a lion, he commands death to release its grip on the one who had been entombed for four days the dual nature, the, the tenderness and the mightiness of Jesus. But I want to take you to what I think is the definitive portrait and picture and revelation of Jesus as the lion and the lamb. And, and you probably know where I'm going. I'm going to the book of Revelation, right? So this is after, after the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. and And, and John is is being persecuted for his testimony. He's sent to this place called Patmos. It's a penal colony, right? And it says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the first vision that he has is because this is not the revelations of John. It drives me nuts when I hear somebody say that. No, it is the unveiling of Jesus. It's the revelation that God gave to Jesus to give to his servant, John. And all of these symbols and all of these images and all of these pictures are the unveiling of Jesus Christ himself. And in John chapter 1, John is so overwhelmed by what he sees that that like that shaking little dog, he falls at the feet of the great lion of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus stretches his hand and touches John and says, John, don't be afraid, it's me. I want you to write down what you see and what you hear and I want you to put it in a book and send it to the seven churches, right? And that's chapter two and chapter three. But then we get to chapter four and and, and it's behold the throne of God. And uh, chapter four is great to use as a devotional. I, I so often read that over and over again. So it helps me whenever I get down on my knees and I wanna seek God and pray, I'm right there. I'm, I'm at the throne of God in the presence of the 24 elders, and there are multiple angels around the throne of God. And I'm speaking not into the air, but into the heart of the one who's sitting upon the throne, all right? But we got to come to chapter 5, because chapter 5 is is the revelation that we want to talk about this morning. So follow along with me on the screen. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw a scroll, which is a book, rolled up in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. So this is God, this is almighty God sitting upon the throne and in his right hand, now he's a spirit and God doesn't have a hand in that sense but but there's an image here and there's a vision that John, th- th- these are all metaphors that we're looking at, okay? so So he says that in the hand of the one sitting on the throne, was this book, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. So, so first of all, notice it was an unusual kind of a scroll or book because the writings weren't normally on inside and out, so, so there's a lot of information that's going on here. It would not be unusual for a scroll to be sealed. For instance, someone's last will and Testament would be sealed until the time of the reading of the will by the executor of the will. And that's one of the things, one of the truths that's, that's coming out here. Verse two says, and I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals of this scroll and to open it. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth in these three realms, was able to open the scroll and to read it. Now, now, what is obvious about that simple verse is that what qualifies the person who is capable and able to open up this book had to do with one who was worthy. That had to do with character. That had to do with purity. And there was none who were found who were worthy. Now, what was in this book, and, 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 and if you read on, in chapter, chapter six, you, you discover that it is, it is both the judgments of God that will be released against the enemies of the gospel, but all, it also contained within that is the redemptive history of the church. It is the ultimate, the culmination of God's redemptive purpose to bring a wedding where the bride and the groom will be joined together for eternity. So, so as a result of no one being found worthy, it says, John, verse 4, says, I began to weep bitterly. John is now in bitter anguish because no one was found worthy. In other words, what is going to be postponed is, is justice. What is going to be postponed is redemptive history. And John is broken up about it. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to read it. But, I love the buts in the Bible. But, one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. And I know I get the word look next up there. But if there's anywhere in the Bible where the word behold ought to be, it ought to be there. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir or the root of David, has has prevailed or has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now we're talking, all right? There is one who's found worthy. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who walked on water, who cast out demons, who raised the dead. I know this one. I know this is Jesus, right? The mighty lion of the tribe of Judah. But now when John turns to see this mighty lion, he doesn't see the roaring maim of, of a figure that is rather, this is what he sees. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. I turn to see that amazing sight, and it was, it was a lamb. What exactly did John see? A lamb that would have been slaughtered was, would have been a lamb that would have had its throat cut from ear to ear and its blood drained what did what did what did john see but the wounds that were ever present ever fresh in the body of the one that we call savior the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world but this lamb is alive this lamb is not is not shaking like that dog in my story this lamb is not slumped over and laying down he's not dejected and defeated this lamb is standing before the throne of the universe and he 's alive forevermore, and this is in that next sentence, but it was it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the twenty four elders and notice what what this lamb looks like. He has seven horns and seven eyes which represent the sevenfold spirit of God sent into all the earth and, and the symbolism is so obvious: horns in scripture is a representation of strength and power. Seven is the number of perfection. And so here is a lamb with perfect, complete power because he is omnipotent. And here is a lamb that has seven eyes. The the eyes are representative of understanding. And here here is the lamb who is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings, these angelic beings that are described in chapter four, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Why did they fall down? They fell down in worship and adoration. You only worship God in heaven. God is the only one to be worshiped. And And this one who is the lion and the lamb is God, the second person of the Godhead. He's not like Mr. Moody's broken, battered, misfortune, sympathetic dog. He is, he is the lamb that had been slain, but he is omnipotent. He is, he is the sovereign of all history. And notice verse 9, it says, And they sang to him a new song. With these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. They will reign on the earth. I am so glad that John included that last sentence in there because it is all about Jesus, but it is all about Jesus and those whom Jesus has redeemed. In the fourth gospel, John's gospel, Jesus is introduced to the nation as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in the New Testament, there's only maybe three other references to Jesus as the lamb. Uh, one by Paul, where Paul talks about Jesus being our Passover lamb. Peter refers to Jesus as the lamb without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And there's there's another reference to it in in the book of Acts, where the e- Ethiopian eunuch is talking to Philip, and, and he wants to know, wh- who is this talking about? This, this one who was like a lamb led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. But other than that, only there's four references to Jesus as the lamb in the New Testament. But when we come to the book of Revelation, when we come to the final book and the, and the final chapters of the, of the book, 29 times Jesus is referred to as the lamb of God. And blessed are they whose names are written in the lamb's book of life. But woe to those who will suffer because of the wrath Of the Lamb, this this dual nature of Christ. And and, and He he is is so much the revelation of this lion-hearted lamb-like figure. The Lamb is a symbol of innocence, meekness, and, and gentleness. In fact, Jesus used that description for himself. He said, Learn of me, for I am meek and humble. Of heart. Paul appealed to the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and, and Paul exhorted them along those lines. The lamb is also the symbol of utter dependence. There's no creature that's more dependent upon, upon trusting in the shepherd than is the lamb. And Jesus demonstrated a life of totally being abandoned, trusting in his heavenly father. For the Jewish people, the lamb was the go-to sacrifice. When, when, when you were to offer a sacrifice, it was preferably that was the go-to sacrifice, the lamb. The first time that the word worship is used in Scripture back in Genesis is when Abraham is walking up with Isaac up the hill of Zion, and Isaac says to his, his, his dad, says, says, Father, the fire we have and the wood we have But where is the lamb? And Abraham speaks beyond himself when he says, my son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And when God speaks to Abraham and says, touch not your son now, now I know you will withhold nothing from me, then suddenly Abraham finds a lamb caught in a thicket. God had provided himself. That was a symbol and a type. Of the, of the lamb that God had provided. He provided himself a sacrifice. One of the greatest symbols of strength in the universe is this, is this lamb of God who's been destined for this purpose, who now lives by the power of an endless life, who brings in ultimate justice and judgment upon the world And who brings in redemptive history. It's it's in his hands. He's the one qualified to open up the the last will and testament, if you will, of God's eternal purposes. You know, the story of the Passover is a clear picture. And it's amazing how the Jewish people, even to this day, their eyes are concealed. They cannot see this. But the Passover lamb Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go. And so the final stroke was the hand of God in in demonstration of God's power in weakness. The angel of death was to pass through the entire land of Egypt that night. You know the story. But death had to first come to an innocent lamb. And when death came upon the innocent lamb and the blood of that lamb was to be sprinkled or smeared upon the the believing household of of each house, the angel of death had no power where death had already been. And in that demonstration, God showed that what he could do through the demonstration of voluntary weakness that it would be a symbol of God's own son. And it's amazing. You know, and I say this, I said this last week, we are not believers. If you are a believer, you are not a believer this morning because of some great wisdom that you have, but because of grace, because God has opened the eyes of your understanding to, to call you into his kingdom. That's the only reason why. And so you are a debtor to grace from now throughout eternity. If you're here this morning and, and you're just joining us in the midst of this series, and, and we're just so glad that you are. You can catch up with one and two by listening to our podcast at our website. But, but, but if, you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope this morning that you will see just how amazing a Savior we have in the unconditional love that he has for you if you will open up your heart to him this morning. See, the amazing thing about that Passover lamb is that at the exact moment, see, John makes it very clear that Jesus was being crucified on the day of preparation. The day of preparation was the preparation for the Passover. At 12 o'clock noon, while Jesus was hanging on the cross at that very hour, at the temple site, some, some several meters away the temple priests were taking the lambs and slaying the lambs and draining their blood for the purpose of sacrifice. While Jesus was the Lamb of God who had voluntarily offered himself to his father at that precise moment for he was and always will be the only acceptable sacrifice, making an end for all other sacrifices. All of those sacrifices for centuries before were now to be done away with. What I want you to know is that, is that that cry from the cross when Jesus said it is finished was not the whimpering, gurgling sound of a dying Jew, but rather it was the roar of a lion who was saying that he had defeated death and sin and conquered Satan in that in that it is finished declaration. This is the victorious cry of a lion, and in that moment the. The, the temple curtain, the veil was torn in two. This 30 foot high, six inch thick curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the lamb of God. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon once, why is it that, that Jesus have, has these wounds in glory? And his answer was that his wounds are his glory. They are the trophies and will ever be for eternity, For there will ever be the reminder of the infinite love that he has toward us. This is what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He says, we admire him for his glory, but even more because his glory is mingled with humility. We admire him for his transcendent, tra- tra- yeah, transcendent, tra- transcendence there you go but even more because his transcendence is accompanied by his condensation not condensation condescension i knew i was going to have a hard time with that we admire him for his uncompromising justice but even more because it is tempered with mercy we admire him for his majesty but even more because his, his majesty is in meekness. We admire him because of his equality with God, but even more because as God's equal, he is nevertheless in deep reverence for God. We admire him because of how worthy he was of all the good, but even more because he was accompanied by an amazing patience to suffer evil. We admire him because of his sovereign dominion over the world, but even more because this dominion was clothed with the spirit of obedience and submission. In the Old Testament, the the word for for sacrifice. In fact, even to this day, the the Day of Atonement is the most sacred of all of the Jewish holy days. The Day of Atonement. That word, atonement, in in the Hebrew means to cover up, to cover over. But that word was transformed, and we don't use that same word in the New Testament because what Jesus does for us, he doesn't cover up, he completely removes from us. When I I take my garbage out, I bring it over, I stick it in the can, and I cover it. That's, that's, That's atonement, that's covering it up. But not until the garbage man comes and completely takes the garbage away is the removal of it. Jesus doesn't cover over our sins. He separates them as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our sins from us so completely. And and what that means is because of that, his blood causes us to be without accusation. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. His sacrifice has forever made an end for, for all other sacrifices. No other sacrifices are necessary any longer. Came across this statement that I wanted to share with you this morning because I thought, I thought it was profound. And the more I thought about it, the more profound I thought it was. I don't even know who said it, but it's this. The most important thought ever pondered by the human mind, beyond the thought of God himself, is grace. The most important thought ever pondered by the human mind beyond the thought of God himself is grace. And the reason why grace is so profound it's because it is the only way that we can connect with a holy God that sinful men and women can connect with a holy God. That's the only way. It's grace. If it was not for the free gift of God we would never have a connection to God. We could never never fellowship, we could never partner, we could never enjoy God, and God could never enjoy us apart from grace. But I was thinking about grace, and the more I meditated upon, upon this grace, there is a destructive aspect of grace. That sounds strange, right? There is a destructive act, aspect about grace. I'm not talking about destructive in the sense that if you're legalistic, you're afraid about grace, you're afraid that it will lead to, lead to a license to say no, 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 no. Grace does just the opposite. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. Where sin does abound, the grace of God does all the more abound. no. When grace comes into your life, it will destroy the old you. When grace comes into your life, it will destroy the idols in your life. It will destroy the the old ways in your life that that you didn't even know had power over you. It will break the chains in your life. And, And grace not only destroys, but it also builds and it creates. And it builds and creates in us the image of God's son that we too would become lion, Lamb-like, bold as a lion, but as harmless and as innocent as a dove. I tell you what, I, I, love, I love that last line that says, and you, this is Revelation 5.10, and you, Jesus, lion-like lamb, have caused them to become a kingdom of priests to our God. And they will reign on the Earth. this paradox of the victim victor, of the terrifying and the tender-hearted, the glory and the humility, holding all of history in his hand, holding all of his, because it is his story. And it is our story because we're joined together with him. Jesus has conquered sin and death and Satan. Jonathan Edwards made a statement. He said that it was one of those classic tactical defeats that resulted in a strategic victory. It seemed like a defeat, but it really was a tactical victory. George Patton is probably one of the greatest uh, heroes in American history. 1944, he took command of the uh, Army's 3rd Division. And uh, historians say that it was a result of his brilliance and his leadership that he advanced further than any other captured more enemy prisoners, liberated more territory in less time than any other army in military history. Historians say his role in stopping Hitler's advance is legendary. One historian by the name of Wallace said this, he was the right man in the right place at the right time when we needed him the most. Born to be a soldier, he succeeded in achieving the greatness for which he was destined. I read that and I said, I said, Jesus, born to be a savior, Jesus succeeded in achieving the greatness for which he was destined. This lion-like lamb liberated more captives in less time than any other person or army in all of history. Jesus, in the truest sense, was not only the right man in the right place at the right time, but he was the only man slash God who could bring about our salvation? The lion like Son of God, the lamb like Son of God, who is qualified to take the scroll and to open its seals and to release justice and redemptive history in the final stage. What, what in one glorious portrait, in one glorious vision, John gives for us, Jesus. Presented before our eyes and the ultimate assembled universe, heaven's champion and the central theme of heaven, Jesus, the lamb, lion will be the central theme of heaven. Here's my bottom line this morning. Victory through the lion, lamb, and the lamb will echo through eternity. Victory through the lion-like lamb will echo through eternity. Now here's Here's my advice to you this morning, okay? For anyone who's been battered, anyone who's been beaten, anyone who has been abused, come to him and let the tenderness of Jesus heal your wounds. Let the compassion and the comfort and the one who is able to protect you from the enemy who would want to devour you, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's my advice. For those of you who need your sins forgiven, let the Lamb of God take away your sin. He will not just simply cover it as though it was was, was, was just a, a, a temporary fix. He will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west so that You will be justified before God's sight just as if you had never sinned. In fact, you you will be in a better position than Adam was before he fell. You will become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let grace, let grace this morning destroy the idols in your life and let grace create in you an image that is just like the image of God's own son. This is our champion this morning. And I say to you this morning, if there's any time, we should say, behold. It's now. Behold the lion and the lamb. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the the word of revelation that you've given to us in the person of your son. I thank you that, that we have been given this portrait by John and this vision of of the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when John turned to see the lion, he saw the lamb as it had been slaughtered. And I thank you that he bears the wounds. As I've said so often in the past, he stands before the throne of God. And those wounds are the windows through which the Father sees us and through which we see the Father, through the windows of the wounds of the Lamb of God that you now qualify us, Lord God, because of that, and you now purify us, and you now cleanse us, and you now heal us through the Lion, Lamb, Son of God. And it's to you that we give praise this morning.